Well, our reading this morning, which we're going to spend time thinking about, is the parable of the tenants, which you'll find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 33, down to the end of the chapter. Matthew 21, verse 33. And before we read, let's bow our heads in prayer again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We look to the ministry of your Holy Spirit to illuminate it for us, to help us to understand it. And Lord, we pray that the message you would have for each one of us, you'd enable us to receive, to find solid, to find good soil that we may leave here determined to live for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So Jesus is in Jerusalem for the last time and he is speaking to some chief priests and elders and Pharisees and he says this, verse 33, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than, the first, than at first, and they did the same to them. Finally, He sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowd, because they held him to be a prophet. So we live in a time in history where authority, any authority, is seen almost in an almost exclusively negative light in our Western culture. The authority of institutions are routinely questioned. People question the authority of the legal system with its police force and judges and so on. 
or the authority of the education system and teachers, the authority of the government, the system of government, the authority of uh, scientific endeavour, the authority of church leadership. All of these things are called into question in our day. As one British politician once said a few years ago, we have had enough of experts. Authority should be ignored, was the implication. And of course, all of these areas have their limits to authority. But at the same time as rejecting authority, we've never been more open to misinformation and conspiracy theories in our society. Where people come to believe that in order to know something, you have to do your own research. Research. And for most people, what research means is feed a few words or phrases into Google. And find that Google throws up a few articles that you can browse over briefly. That counts for research. Of course, Google, Facebook, TikTok, whatever... They increasingly feed you things that it has learned that you, know, you want to believe or you want to know. It doesn't, two people doing a Google search will get very different answers because they're different people. Google knows who you are. <laughs> it's scary, isn't it? So you're not really doing research, are you? But it shows this rejection of authority and openness to misinformation shows that when it comes to the question of who has authority, the answer the modern world actually gives is me. Who has authority? Me. I'm the authority. If I read something and I believe it, then for me that's authoritative. No matter how much it may roll off the tongue of a Christian that Jesus is Lord. In fact, Christians are not immune to that way of thinking. And there's much for us to learn about the nature of true authority and where it lies. And where we put our focus. Well, in the section that we looked at last week, from verses 18 down to uh, 20, uh, sorry, verses 23 to, to 32... Uh, we looked at this question of the authority of Jesus and uh, what our response to that authority should be. And this time we're going to look at another parable that follows on immediately afterwards. Jesus tells two parables in a a row. And this one is the, the parable of the tenants. And it's a parable that shows how the peop- how people reject God's authority and the authority of his son even though... That authority also establishes a grace-filled environment for his people. You probably need to think about that. That his authority establishes for us a grace-filled environment for his people. And we'll see that as we go along. God's authority cannot be separated from his, his gracious intentions. And therefore, Christian, as Christians, an implication of that is that in order to enjoy the gracious blessing of God, we need to accept and give ourselves to his authority. 
So let me start by just giving you a, a description of the parable. And uh, it's a very simple parable. It's a story of a master, a lord who owns some land. And it's a, you know, it's a made-up story. Um, but it carries a, an important message. But he, this master, he owns some land. And he wants to make good use of the land, so he plants a vineyard. And that involves uh, planting, planting some vines that will grow and in the fullness of time will bear fruit. And, uh, but in order for that to be successful, you need some infrastructure. Uh, and so you build a fence around the whole thing to guard it against animals or thieves or whatever. Uh, you put a tower in the middle so that you can get a good view of what's happening, if anything's happening. And you can protect and guard uh, your vineyard. And then for the fruit that is produced, you need a wine press. And that's usually two, two big basins, maybe dug out of the ground, uh, lined with stones and plaster, and uh, one is higher than the other. And then you put your, your harvested grapes in one so you can tread on them, and then you spend your time treading on the grapes and uh, all the juice. Always one of the cleaner feet first. But, you know, they, you produce the juice, and the juice flows into the lower basin, and then you, you kind of gather it up and put it into uh, containers. And uh, so that's how it's supposed to, uh, to work. And so the goal of that, of course, is wine. Wine, as uh, Psalm 104 verse 15 says, wine gladdens the heart. And so it's, a, it's an expression of the, the gladness and the blessing of God uh, on his people. So uh, he, he leases this new vineyard to tenants who can deal with the day-to-day management. And you'll expect a, a proportion, at least, of the profits uh, when the time for harvest comes. But what happens then is pretty disastrous. Uh, twice he sends servants to collect his dues, and both times they're beaten, stoned, and some killed, but no produce is brought back. And finally, as a last resort, he decides to send his son, and he thinks, the master thinks, surely they will respect my son. And so the sun comes, and they see this, the tenants see this as an opportunity. If we get rid of the air, then the inheritance will come to us. And in those times, I think, um, just to add to the story a little bit, in those times, landowners continually had to lay claim to the, the land in their possession. Otherwise, legally, it could pass to the tenant. So the hearers of this parable would understand what's going on. But if they can stop giving the landowner his dues, then eventually they'll uh, obtain it themselves. And the parable, so the, so the son is killed He's taken outside of the vineyard and he is put to death. And that's the end of the, the, the parable. The parable closes with a question. What's the landowner going to do next? What's the right thing for him to do? So Jesus is, is saying this to the chief priests, the Pharisees, the elders that are gathered around him and talking to him. What, what should this landowner do? And so they answer correctly, I think. They say that the landowner will have to put him to death for the murder he's committed, they've committed. And the tenancy then will be handed over to new tenants. So what's Jesus doing with this parable? What's he, 
seeking to communicate with this parable. Well, I think it's obviously that obvious that the parable is highly allegorical. Not every parable is highly allegorical. Perhaps it's more so than others. And the elements represent something about the current situation that Jesus finds himself in. So let me just mention five things quickly. First of all, the tenants are the religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to. And we see this from the reaction of the chief priests at the end. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So the tenants are the chief priests, the religious leaders at the time of Jesus. Secondly, the vineyard is Israel or God's people. And this, the reason we know this is because the, the idea of a vineyard is a common image or metaphor in the Old Testament to describe the people of God. Thirdly, who's the master? Well, the master is God. It's God's vineyard. The tenants are God's tenants. And fourthly, the servants that are sent by the, by the master, who are they? Well, they're the prophets of the past. And you'll know that many of those prophets that God sent ended up dead or rejected because they were prophets. And then finally, fifthly, the son that is sent represents Jesus, the Son of God, who has come to his own, as John put it in John chapter 1, but his own did not receive him. So five things, five elements of this parable. I don't have five points this morning, but just three points this morning. But that's just to orientate us into what Jesus is doing here. And the first thing I want you to notice here, what are the lessons that we can learn? The first thing I want you to notice is the graciousness of God in the first place. The graciousness of God in the first place. Now, how do, how do I get graciousness of God from this parable? Well, it's the way that God sets up a vineyard in the first place. You see, in the image of the vineyard, the fruit does not spontaneously appear as if by magic. It needs investment and care. And this is what God has persistently done for his people. You just have to look at the history of the Old Testament uh, to see the benefits, the blessings that they received as a result of the Lord taking the initiative and establishing a covenant of grace with his people. So... God calls people out of darkness until I think of how God has continually intervened in the lives of his people. Think of Abraham, plucked out of nowhere in obscurity to go to a land that God has promised. Think of Moses, born to a nondescript family in slavery in Egypt, and yet God seems to single him out to lead his people from slavery to freedom. 
Or think of David, King David, called out of nowhere. He was a shepherd boy in the hills somewhere. And God sends Samuel to, to find him. Because God had his, his eye on David. And he calls David to be king and anoints him. And in the fullness of time, he ascends to the throne. And all of these figures, they come out of obscurity from nowhere because God has taken the initiative. God has done something wonderful for his people. To create a people for himself and providing for them what they need. And when it comes to Isaiah, who comes much later, in about 700 B.C., and Isaiah comes with warnings to the people of Israel who seem to have rejected all that God has done for them. And he describes how God has established Israel as a vine, a vineyard. And he says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed a, vine, a, vine, a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. So you can see where this parable comes from. It's the work that God has done in the people of Israel in the past. And so this vineyard that God has been working on is a labor of love for God. Where the people themselves are pictured as passive recipients of his grace and his goodness. Where God has done the work of planting where he has done the work of providing protection and hedging his people around, where he has set up a great tower to to overview his people. How how many of the Psalms do you read of where God is a great tower into which you can hide? And the expectation of God is that this vineyard of his people will provide fruit, glorious fruit, for his delight and for our delight. That the people themselves will be blessed under the hand, the gracious hand of God. Now this teaches us something very important about God. That his authority is set very much within the framework of his grace towards his people. That he is not a tyrant who simply wants to rule. That he is a gracious God who establishes a people in the midst of a sinful and crooked generation because he wants to bless them even though they sin. He wants to bless them. So if you're someone this morning who is suspicious of authority, and perhaps especially of God's authority, but maybe any other kind of authority, think of this, consider this, that God's authority is, and how he uses it is not like how human beings use authority. Which is often... That human beings use it for their own benefits. Think of our political leaders. Think of people at the top of business who pay themselves bonuses when they don't do anything. So it seems. As a political statement, I shouldn't say things like that. But it's true, isn't it? You can see it with your eyes. (laughs) Listen with your ears. You can see it. Higher up the chain you get, the more you seem to want to use your authority for yourself. For your own benefits and and you and yours. But God uses his authority to bring blessing on his people. So God 
is gracious as he uses his authority. Secondly, look at the consider the great gracious expectation of God. What does God expect in this vineyard that he has planted? Why does the master plant a vineyard in the first place? With all the infrastructure? Because he wants to see fruit from it. Why does God establish a people out of nowhere? And throughout the Bible seems to watch over them and protect and guard them. Because he wants to see fruit amongst his people. When the gospel seed is sown in human lives, Jesus tells us, to expect them to bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. When God deposits his word into your life, he expects fruit from you in your life. And John, Jesus says in John chapter 15, speaking to his disciples, he calls them a vine. I'm the, you're, I'm the vine, you're the branches of the vine. And he says this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear bear more fruit. So what kind of fruit does Jesus have in mind? What kind of fruit does God have in mind? Well, Paul helps us in Romans chapter 6, 21. He says, speaks of people who have become Christians, who have been baptized, and they're united to Jesus Christ by faith. And he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and and its end, eternal life. That is the eternal life of which every believer receives a deposit by the, the Holy Spirit will be sanctified and prepared for heaven. You'll be sanctified. You'll be made more holy. You'll become more like Jesus as you grow older. That's the fruit. And the character looks like this. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Friends, this is what God expects for you. If you're a Christian today, he expects this of you and it's glorious, isn't it? He wants to change you, to be more Jesus-like in your life. For those fruits, it's a single fruit with different aspects, I think, but for this fruit to appear in your life, to have all of these things together, you grow in a most glorious and wonderful way. See, he is the loving father of his beloved children. And he knows exactly what he wants for them. Just like you parents know exactly, probably have a good idea what you want for your children as they grow up. You're not neutral. You have an idea of where they want to go and you'll push them in the directions you think they should go in. You ought to. (laughs) That's what being a parent is. So he wants the fruit. But notice also, he provides something else to encourage that fruit. 
He, needs pe- he puts people on the ground to tend and care for the vineyard. And as I said earlier, the religious leaders realized that Jesus correctly identified them, them as the, the tenants of the vineyard. In other words, the tenants are the religious leaders of the people of God. And it's a reminder for us, I think, that, that God tends to his vineyard through the appointment of religious leadership. And in the Old Testament, we had this system of religious leadership. We had kings, who were put, put there to be shepherds of the people. Priests, who would offer and intercede for the people. And prophets, who would bring God's word to the people. So prophet, priest, and king. Uh, all were there in the Old Testament. And of course, that's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ now. So Jesus comes as the prophet, the priest, the king. And he, therefore, is head of, over all the church. He is in charge of the church. And in turn, he appoints those under him to exercise his kingly, priestly, prophetic rule. And that's what we call elders and ministers. Now, of course, the, uh, those elders and ministers, are, they are to exercise care over God's people, in order that the people are stimulated to grow fruit. And of course, the role of an elder and a minister is limited only to those things that are appropriate to encouraging this fruitfulness. And so the tools are, are limited as well. You know, elders can't tell you what, what house to buy or where to live or who to marry or all that kind of stuff, uh, except where God, God's word speaks to it. Uh, but we, we can't exercise universal control over your life. But the tools we have are the word of God. And drawing your attention to the scripture so that you know what God says. So in a sense it's not really our authority, but it's God's authority that's speaking into your life. And so you know, through that ministry, what to believe and what to do in response to those beliefs. God gives us things to believe and things to do in Scripture. And that word both feeds, uh, feeds church members spiritually and, in, and it enables pruning to be done. Uh, in other words, dealing with certain sins in your life. Uh, you may have certain persistent sins that arise within you. And it's through the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the authoritative word, use of the Word of God that those sins are going to be uh, put to death. So religious leaders are really important in God's people, amongst God's people. But it is only exercised through the word of God. God, you see, wants what is pleasing to grow in you. And anything, anything at all that inhibits growth and fruitfulness is to be removed and so I just need to ask you this morning is that your goal under God do you want God to help you with the growth of fruit in your life that you grow from being a wild plant in the wilderness to being a carefully cultivated fruitful plant in the kingdom of God
See, sometimes I look at Christians, some Christians, and I get the impression that we're not really that concerned about it. There isn't a heart for it. Is God challenging you today to give yourself to the production of fruit in your life that you seek to live a holy life under God's word? And you avail yourself of every opportunity to grow in the word of God. Well, as you think about that, let me just come to the final point this morning. Uh, There's a warning here too in this parable. At the conclusion of the parable, uh, and the warning is that judgment and salvation come through the Son. At the conclusion of the parable, the chief priests and and the Pharisees give the right answer to the question, what should be done to the tenants? That there should be judgment for the delinquent tenants and opportunity given to new tenants. And it's the right answer, but it sets up the revelation of a problem to the chief priests and the Pharisees. It presents a problem to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Because, as we noted earlier, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they realized, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They are the tenants. Now, how did they, question, how did they know it was about them? How did they identify themselves in this story? After all, they had never actually personally killed anyone. And certainly not, they had not killed the Son of God standing in front of them, Jesus. So why would they feel it was, it was about them? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the guilty conscience works in a strange, strange ways, doesn't it? It condemns us when, we've done, when we think wrong. And it's clear that these Pharisees and chief priests were thinking the very things that were in, this, in the parable, even though they had not acted on it yet. You see, they wanted rid of Jesus. They were looking for a reason to arrest him. And if they could bump him off with a facade of legality, then they would try and do it. So they thought about it, and their consciences are guilty. And at this point, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. You see that quotation in verse 42. The stone the the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. At first sight, that doesn't seem to be connected to what he's been saying. But think about it. In the first century, builders who start a building choose a suitable cornerstone for a foundation. And what it does is it sets the position of the building and the angles and the lines. And so you have to look at a few stones in order to find a suitable cornerstone to start the building off. And you may have to reject a few before you get to the one that really works for your building. Jesus is the cornerstone for the building that God is building. And that building is his church. The true Israel. He is building his church. And he is the the cornerstone of that building. But here's the problem for the chief priests and the Pharisees. They have rejected that cornerstone. They've rejected it and therefore they reject the building. 
They want rid of Jesus. And Jesus says, this stone that you've rejected, it will be your destruction. Either by you trying to fall on it and destroy it, or it falling on you. And the message, I think, from Jesus is very clear. It's a message to all of us that you cannot reject Jesus without consequences. You cannot reject the son of the master. You may ignore him, you may even try to kill him, but in the end, he will crush you. And the parable gives us an indication of what's going to happen to Jesus. And he said explicitly before, and the disciples have struggled to accept it, that he is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die. But he's going to rise again from the dead. And now it's said in the parable, only half of it in the parable, that the son was killed outside the vineyard. But it perfectly and compellingly describes what's going to happen to Jesus in front of these chief priests and Pharisees who are thinking it. Jesus is going to go to his death at the hands of sinful men. But it will not end there. For this rock that people have sought to reject and destroy will become the place where they are destroyed. You see, Jesus was not got rid of in his death. Because he rose again from the dead. Gloriously, in victory over death. And he has ascended into heaven. One day he shall come back. He will return and he will carry out his judgment. And his people will rejoice and they will be gathered into glory forever. Free of all sin, free of the power, penalty of sin and the presence of sin. And they will be gathered up with him into the air. And go to be with him forever. But those who reject him, they will rise again from the dead. But to be sent to eternal damnation. And will be crushed. Friends, let's not spurn the authority of God in our lives. Let us not spurn the authority of Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. But let's receive it. And in doing so, receive his grace towards us, that we'll be blessed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful, <clears throat> wonderful word. Thank you for the, this amazing parable that searches the hearts of the hearers, exposes the consciences of the hearers. And Father, we may be sitting here this morning and our consciences too have been exposed as those who maybe quietly reject the authority of the Lord Jesus. Oh, we pray. You would help us to bow our heads before our great and mighty King, that he may receive us and bless us with eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.